I'm going to continue tonight. We've been on about 11 or 12 week journey uh, talking about the, the culture, the spiritual culture we're creating here. And we started uh, by talking about five weeks on agape love. And then we've now uh, been about the last six weeks or so talking about pneumaticus, which is that word for spiritual. And talking about that we're creating a supernatural culture whenever we're creating a church because we're creating a culture that God is in the midst of. So it's incongruent to think that God lives inside of us and not expect that to be supernatural. <laughs> that's kind of crazy. I think that's really funny. Anyways, um, you know, God's been moving and just seeing him move and the testimonies that we're hearing have been incredible. And just on Tuesday at staff meeting, we were talking about some of the testimonies we've been hearing on a weekly basis, and I was, I was moved to tears as we were just reflecting on all that God's done as we're creating this culture, and uh, that's beautiful, and whenever God moves, there's kind of a curious dichotomy that, around, that like comes out of that, arises out of that. There's the word I was looking for, and I kind of want to define the tension that I've heard expressed through a number of you, and I think it's really healthy, and I want to put language to it tonight and then speak into that. And uh, basically what I've heard is something along these lines, that I'm exhilarated. God's moving in a way that I've never seen him move before, but at the same time, I'm really uncomfortable. Does anybody relate to that? All right, maybe I'm preaching to the wrong people. <laughs> maybe you should be preaching to me then. So I'm exhilarated, God's moving, yet I'm extremely uncomfortable. Sometimes we think that's because something's going wrong. I think that's because something's going right. Uh, we've talked about building a culture camped around God's presence. So we're not coming for a sermon. We're not coming for songs. We're not coming for a routine. We're coming for God. And there's a big difference between creating a culture that's about God versus a culture that's around God. Uh, when you're creating a culture about God, there, you can glean a lot of wisdom, uh, inspiration, uh, knowledge. Uh, you'll get things about God. You'll learn about who God is. Uh, but you can keep your comfort because there's still kind of a safe distance. I'm just learning about God. Uh, when you're coming around God, when you're actually coming to behold God, that's both a terrible and an exciting, amazing thing because he's holy. And so when we're coming into the presence, the, the manifest, authentic presence of the Holy One, something's got to give. And it's not Him. Right? Like it says all throughout the Old Testament, no man will see God and live. And yet Jesus Christ came to call us into an intimate relationship with Him. So when we come into the presence of the Holy One, we're going to die. <laughs> like... Bottom line, there's, there's no way to get around it. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be exhilarating. You're going to experience love incarnate. But you're going to die because he's holy. Right? And it, it, Paul puts a lot of language to this dichotomy a lot. But I love Philippians 3 where he says, uh, by any means possible, like I'll be conformed to the image of his death. Conformed to his death so that by any means possible I can attain to the resurrection. Yeah. Right? And there's this dichotomy that gets created and so there's both death there's suffering there's a cost to creating a culture that's around God but there's also hope there's a resurrection 
There's God himself, right? So uh, we're creating uh, this culture around God, and there is a cost. And so I want to talk tonight about the cost and the hope of what we are creating here to kind of end this series. So if you're at Luke 14, I'm going to read Luke 14, verse 26 through 33. And it says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, The man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then... None of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. The word of the Lord. I think it's fascinating that the first verse that I read and then the last verse there in 33, uh, it's, it says you've got to give up all your possessions. And he starts with what I would deem the most valuable and significant possessions we have in this life, which are relationships. I think relationships are that which attach us most to this world. And that's not all bad, but it's this reality that Jesus is setting up the scope, the landscape of what discipleship is. And he's clearly identifying in this passage that discipleship demands an audience of one. He's not saying hate your family. He's saying you cannot love them more than you love me. Whose approval are you living for? The relationships, the friendships, the family, the people, your church, the people sitting next to you in the pews. Whose approval? Is it their approval or is it my approval? Right? And discipleship demands an audience of one. And it is a sharp demand that is unwavering. And I was reading it this week, uh, this book. I've been reading this book, Abba's Child. And... Uh, Brennan Manning quotes this author, Anthony DeMello, who, who kind of, uh, he extracts, he, he, he talks about this connection, this relationship, how primary they are in our lives, these attachments we have with people. He talks about it in a pessimistic way, but I found myself resonating with his language, and I'm just going to read this, uh, this little paragraph. It says, look at your life and see how you have filled its emptiness with people. As a result, they have a stranglehold on you. See how they control your behavior by their approval and disapproval. They hold the power to ease your loneliness with their company, to send your spirit soaring with their praise, to bring you down to the depths with their criticism and rejection. Take a look at yourself, spending almost every waking moment of your day placating and pleasing people, whether they're living or dead. 
You live by their norms, conform to their standards, seek their company, desire their love, dread their ridicule, long for their applause, meekly submit to the guilt they lay upon you. You're terrified to go against the fashion in the way you dress or speak or act or even think. And observe how even when you control them, you depend on them and are enslaved by them. People have become so much a part of your being that you cannot even imagine living a life that is unaffected or uncontrolled by them. I know that's heavy, uh, but I found myself resonating with the sentences, a number of them saying, wow, I see that in my life. And yet the words of Jesus stand in stark contrast to this. You have to hate your father, mother, brothers, sisters, friends, relatives, everyone, including yourself. And follow me if you want to be my disciple. I had a, a man a number of years ago. He was a very gifted, powerful leader. And he was speaking into me from like a leadership, um, mentorship type way. And he said these words to me that deeply... Uh, disturbed me, and I sat on them for a long time. And we were talking about the context of leadership, and he has told me this. He said, you're, you're never going to be able to fully be yourself in leadership. He said, that will be a, a burden you bear. Uh, meaning that in leadership, it often means that there's a require that you have to put things aside, and you have to, you know, learn how to woo people and kind of, you know, pull people together. Does that make sense? So you can't actually fully be yourself. They disturbed me deeply, and I didn't know why, so I chewed on them for a long time. And I, uh, I share this tonight to say that I've come to the point where I, I, I disagree. I diametrically oppose the wisdom expressed in that sentiment because I don't see it in the life of Jesus. Jesus was fully himself to, to the utmost when he was angry, when he was sad, when he was weeping, when he was moved with compassion. You know, and at the end of his life, he looks at Thomas, upset, saying, show us the Father, it's enough. And he says, you've seen the Father, because you've seen me. I expressed myself completely. I embodied this gospel to you, right? And I've recognized, as I've pondered, that this, this wisdom is actually the fruit. It comes from a paradigm of the fear of man. And I think this is one of the biggest temptations we face, not just in leadership, but in life, and we're all leaders, you know, parents are leaders, teachers are, like, we all have a measure of leadership, but I think this just applies to life. And this is the temptation. In the fear of rejection, we get tempted to reject ourselves and make some type of facade that we think people will like to try to gain approval. And when we do this, we are sacrificing authenticity on the altar of the approval of man. And we are becoming an echo or a copy or a shadow of who we were created to be. God knit himself into you. He made you to be unique. He made you to be fully yourself. Right? And we're not doing anyone a favor when we, you know, when I, I alter, no, I'm not going to share that because you might not accept. Da, 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 da. We're... We're not doing anyone favors. And I believe that the moment that we sacrifice authenticity on the altar of the approval of man, we lay the foundation for a culture of conformity to be created. Because we're saying, I care more about what people think 
than who God created me to be. This happens in all of life, all cultures we can create, business, family, home, doesn't matter. But when it happens in the church, we create religious institution, religious kind of culture, and we put God in a box. Because we all come to this agreement through our own approval. We don't necessarily say it, but we kind of discern from how every, what everybody thinks is good, and we get this set of like, this is who God is. This is how God moves. Right? And we end up constricting God, and we are more, cons- because we're deafened by everyone else's. We want everyone else's approval. We're constantly looking. What does everybody else think? And we become so in tune to our peers, but we become deaf to God. And if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your father, mother, brother, sisters, family, friends, people, and listen to me. It's an audience of one. Discipleship demands an audience of one. So God, uh, we can put him in a box, but he won't stay there. The Lion of Judah doesn't live in a zoo. He's extraordinarily uncomfortable when we create these paradigms that maintain our comfort. He gets very uncomfortable. And so he does, in the words of Isaiah 43, he, he, this is what he constantly uh, does. He reinvents himself to us. And in verse 18, he says, Don't call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? Right? So we can sacrifice authenticity, create cultures of conformity, lock God in a box of our own minds, but God doesn't stay there. He does a new thing. And the new thing is called revival. Right? And who in here, like, who's prayed for revival before in their life? Who believes that we need a revival in America? Right? I do too. I, I, I deeply believe this. Uh, we must recognize, however, that when we are saying these words, we need a revival. Right? I see this all the time on Instagram, Facebook, new book, that book, revival school, revival conference. Right? We're obsessed with this idea of revival because we see the cultural decay. But we have to recognize that when we're saying we need a revival, we are indicting ourselves. We're indicting the church. We're saying Something is dead that needs to come to life. Something is sleeping that needs to wake up. Right? So we're, we're indicting ourselves. This is uncomfortable. We are challenging and saying what the spiritual culture of this nation isn't working. Are you following me? We're saying it's, there's something that needs to change. And we oftentimes will like point and it's like, yes, something over there needs to change. <laughs> and God's like... Something needs to change. Amen? Amen? So this is, this is good, but it's uncomfortable. All right, because this is the pattern of revival. This is, if you just study revival history, which I've done a fair amount of, uh, God will sovereignly choose an individual or a group of individuals or a community. He does it differently, but he will sovereignly choose people who are hungry and thirsty for his presence, and he'll pour out his spirit, and he'll begin to do a new thing, right? This is amazing. This is uh, what we want. This is what I long to be a part of with my life. This is what I long, Riverhouse, to embody, right? So uh, he pours, he selects people, he pours out his spirit, he does a new thing. But this is where I want to warn you all. 
uh, what is new is usually resisted by what is old. Because the new thing challenges the structures. It challenges the mindsets. It challenges the beliefs of the old thing. So there is usually a lot of resistance in this process. Right? And I would say, you say, well, how could God cause resistance with what God did? What God did be in resistance with what God's doing. So that doesn't make sense. The reason there's resistance is because what God did eventually became, when we sacrifice authenticity for the approval of man, we fear begins to corrode this, right? So instead of there being what God did to doing, to doing with momentum, this corrosion of fear just stifles things. Does this make sense? So when there's this corrosion, there's this resistance, and there's this almost as if they're at odds. When they're not at odds, they're just different because the Lion of Judah doesn't live in a zoo. He won't be domesticated. He's untamed. He's passionate. He is unpredictable. He's absolutely good, but you don't know what he's going to do next. Just ask Gideon. Lord, we don't have enough people. Yeah, tell him to go home. No, 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 no. I need more. No, no, yeah, tell him to go home. No, no, now tell him more to go home. What? All right, I thought that's surprising. Uh, if you can turn your Bibles to Hebrews 13. I'm going to read a verse. I think it's, uh, it's often kind of skipped over. I haven't heard many messages on this verse, uh, but it's talking about the same uh, revival, this resistance that takes place, right? And This is Hebrews 13, verse 11 through 13. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we don't have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. Right, so they... The, the sin offerings and the scapegoat would be sent outside the camp. They bore the reproach. And Jesus uh, was the scapegoat for our sins. He took the sin upon him. He suffered. They sent him outside the gate of Jerusalem. He was burnt on the hill. He was crucified on the hill of Golgotha, just outside the city gate. And now it's saying, you better be prepared to go suffer in the same way as Jesus. This isn't comfortable. But what it's saying is you're going to have to go outside the religious community is where Jesus had to go suffer, right? It wasn't Rome that had an issue with Jesus. It was the established, built on the approval of man, system of religion that persecuted Jesus, that persecuted God himself, right? This is who had an issue with Jesus. This is uncomfortable, right? So Jesus had to go outside. So what Jesus is saying in this verse, is be prepared to bear reproach. Be prepared if people don't, they might be uncomfortable with you. They might not think the best of you. They might not give you their approval. But what are you going to do? Are you going to sacrifice what God is doing? Are you going to sacrifice authenticity? Or are you going to be prepared to walk in the footsteps of Jesus? And if it takes me outside the camp, I'll go outside the camp. I won't be liked by people if that's what it costs. I'll give you my reputation, Lord, if that's what it costs, if I can have you. If you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your father, mother, friends, relatives, peers, people surround you, and live for an audience of one. 
Even if the audience of one's taking you outside the city camp. All right, so Jesus is obviously persecuted in his earthly ministry. John Wesley, who's heard of him? Father of the holiness movement. He was, he was persecuted. The name Methodist was a slanderous term that people used to call him. They didn't like him, and he was persecuted. This is why. Because they didn't think it was biblical that he was going to the prisons and preaching the gospel to the people in the prisons. Is that unbiblical? No. But it was persecuted because it exposed the apathy of the Anglican church. They didn't like it. Right? Who's heard of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield? They were some of the main voices in American revivalism and the Great Awakenings. There are books that were published and circulated through the colonies describing that they were emotionalist and sensationalist and what they were doing was wrong. Even some to the point that it was demonic. And these are the men that turned America upside down and revival fire flew through. Uh, Bill, Bill Bright, uh, people believe that he was a heretic because while he was studying at Fuller Theological in Pasadena, he had a revelation from the Lord that he was to create a parachurch ministry, which I don't know that he had that language, but he created Krampus Crusade for Christ, which was not a church. That was an unheard of thing. And he got violently persecuted. He got slandered because that he was doing something wrong. Right, there's a woman named Jean Goyon who's a, a French um, mystic on the inner life of prayer with Jesus, like a monastic. And... Uh, she wrote a little book called Experiencing the Depths of Jesus that deeply impacted John Wesley, the Quaker, like a lot of powerful uh, ministers were impacted by her book. She wrote it in the 1600s. Uh, but it so would set these villages in France on fire that it undermined the power of the religious elite. And so they put her in prison. Said so she was a heretic. Right? Person after person after person after person, when you look at revival history, people didn't like it really uncomfortable in the moment, right? And uh, Luke eleven forty seven, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, he's saying, you, uh, you build tombs to honor the prophets. It was your fathers that killed them. I think Jesus is trying to say, when are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up and stop resisting God? It's easy to honor the things in the past. It's not always easy to embrace it in the moment. But we have to, if we're to be the people that God's called us to be, and if we're to be disciples of Jesus, above all else. Uh, just to be as forth closing as, with, as I can. Uh, River House is a pioneering church with a pioneering call to go into the new thing that God's doing. That's where we've set our intention. I want to be a part of the new thing. I believe God's stirring over this nation. I believe he wants to do something, and I want to be a part of it. I, I, I want to be on the cutting edge with him. I want to see, see him move in like the Lion of Judah in, an, in the plain. I want to see him. And I'm obsessed with the notion and the belief that God desires his fullness to dwell inside of us. I want the fullness of God and I will pay any price for it. I want God. I don't want a big church. I don't want a bunch of, I, I want God. That's what I'm after is God. If the church grows, great. That's up to him. I want God. I want his manifest presence in the midst of this house. And Tozier says it this way. I want the presence of God himself 
or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. I want all that God has, or I don't want any. That's A.W. Tozier. There's a deep conviction in my heart that there's more. There's more than what we've seen. There's more than what we've settled for as American Christianity. There is more of God, and I can't stop. I'm on a mission to find it. I'm on a mission to find him. And I don't care if it costs me my reputation. I don't care if it costs me this ministry. I don't care if it costs me my security. I don't care if it costs me my finances. I don't care. I'm after God. And I don't say that to like pop myself, prop myself up. I say that to be an honest confession to you that that is the culture that I am commissioned by God to create in this house. That's where we're going. So you'll be asked the same questions by him. Will you give me your reputation? Will you trust me with your life? Will you trust me with everything is really what it boils down to. Because we came here and sang tonight that you can have it all. And for some reason, it's easy to sing those songs and it be like so glorious a moment. But we don't really take time to sit and say, is everything really his? This is how I find out if it really belongs to him or not. If I start getting afraid of losing something, I know I haven't given it to him. I've found, I've been convicted times in the church, I start fretting. He says, why are you fretting about things that could happen to the church? Is it yours or mine? I see you, Lord. I hear you. Take me deeper. Take me deeper into surrender. Because really, this is a culture of true discipleship, is you have to answer these questions. Will you give everything to Jesus? Will you live for an audience of one? Are you willing to lay down your your reputation if it looks weird when God moves? Are you willing to look like a fool? Are you willing to to humble yourself like King David and dance in his loincloth in front of all the people he's called to lead? That's not in any leadership books, I promise you that. John Maxwell's never written that. you really want to get your people's heart just strip down in front of them and worship undignified no (laughs) really a culture of true discipleship you have to answer the question do you have what it takes to build the tower there's only one way you can say yes to that and that's if you give everything it will take everything to be able to complete that project that tower your whole life Jesus gave everything, and so he is not being uh, obtuse when he asks for the same in reply. There's no 90%, there's no 92%, there's no 95%, there's no 98%. It's 100%. And I don't know why you'd ever want anything less than 100%. That's just like purgatory. <laughs> like I'm most the way in, but, I, you know, it's like just die. Just give it. Uh, there's hope. It's both a cost, but there's also hope. And uh, hopefully this movie clip's going to work this service. But uh, there's a movie. Has anybody seen the movie The Giver? It's a, I believe that movie is a prophetic picture of what it looks like to live with a pioneering call on your life. A prophetic pr- pr- propensity that God gives 
uh, to people. And I believe this church, I believe Riverhouse has a pioneering call on it. Like I said, to pioneer into the new thing that God is doing. So I'm just going to set up um, this story and then hopefully this clip will work. Um, and if not, we'll still watch the top half of it because it works. Uh, but there's a utopian society in this community, in this movie rather, and because of fear, because of war and pain and suffering and all the things of life, they've used control to create a sense of unity. So they got rid of emotions, they got rid of romantic love, they got rid of color, they got rid of music, they got rid of weather, they got rid of emotions, they got rid of anything that made human beings unique so that there could be order, Right? And the thing that I think is interesting is uh, that this order, it's the superficial order, but it very much mirrors a lot of people I've heard talk about 1 Corinthians 14.40, all things should be done in an orderly manner. And what that is, it's an order where you remove all risk and it becomes very robotic. And I've seen people project that verse to a human understanding of order and thinking that the church should be a place that removes all risk and becomes robotic. And you understand that's not church. (laughs) Church is a bunch of broken people coming to a God that gets into the mess with his people. I talked about last service. God uses terrorists to start building his church. That's Paul. He's a terrorist killing Christians. That'd be like me telling you next week, hey, one of the leaders of ISIS called me. He saw Jesus. He wants to preach here. That's the gospel. Right? God, God gets into the mess with people. It's not, there's risk at every layer, every turn, every place. Are you kidding me? It's a, it's a mess. We read the Bible like, yeah, that seems like it's all, no, the, it's a mess. They're like, man, people are bickering because we can't give the food. What do we do, Holy Spirit? Get seven people, okay. You know, it's like they're just trying to figure out how to deal with the mess, and God's moving, right? We act, we can't project some type of perfect crystal cut, like cookie cutter thing. That's not the gospel. That's not God. That's not real life. And if I create a culture like that here, that's not equipping you to be effective in life because when you go to life, it's messy, When you go to life, it's full of questions, and I don't understand this, and why is there suffering, and why is there bad things? Life is real, and life's messy, and I want a God that's in the mess with me. I don't want some cookie-cutter, artificial, superficial thing. And so this movie, there's this utopian society. They've made it cookie-cutter, and there's one person in the whole society that they call the receiver of the memories, and they have memories of everything that that made of before they created the society. And it's this painful burden because the person that has the memories, they see, he sees things that are amazing, but they don't exist. Does that make sense? He sees, it's like, I see, I have this propensity to see something that's not here. And I believe that's the pioneering call. That's, that's, what, that's what prophecy is. God comes and he rests upon his people. And he takes, he takes this piece of heaven of what he desires us to give. And he puts it into his man. And we begin to see. It's dimly. I can't quite make it out. But we begin to see something that I know it exists, but I haven't seen it yet here. Right, and for me, when he called me, I saw the bride. I saw the bride. And when I saw the bride, I, I knew what my call in life was. I, I have to see what you've shown me. I have to see it here. I can't stop till I see what you showed me, God, happen here. And so if it means i got to go outside the gate, I'll go outside the gate because what I've seen is so compelling. 
but there's resistance. And I'm preaching this message tonight because this was my cry when on dark nights by myself in lonely places. And it's that cry that's got me here on a stage with people coming to listen speak. And it's not just my cry, it's becoming a culture. And I'm just trying to be fully myself to you tonight that this is the culture that's being created. This is the cry of my heart is to be the bride, but there's going to be resistance. There's going to be discomfort, and that's okay. There's supposed to be. We're coming around God. right? So this is a clip. It's at the end of the movie. There was a new receiver of memory, and there, as he's, his, the old one's about to die and giving his memories away, in the, the love that they start sharing and the hope that they start seeing, uh, they, ha- they, they start breaking the rules, and they have to go outside the gate. They have to go outside the community to try to pioneer into a breakthrough. And this is this is the scene that I think is profound. So you can stop this. Stop what? If you don't want to see it, sit down with the other elders. Close your eyes. Ceremony of release to elsewhere. Hello, Fiona. Are you uncomfortable? I'm not uncomfortable. I'm afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You know me. I'll be very gentle, and I promise. Her name was Rosemary. She was my daughter. I loved her. Precision of language. (laughs) Could not be more precise. Do you know what that's like? To love someone? I do. I've cried. I've felt her sorrow. I've sung, danced. real joy. Then you should know better than anyone. You have seen children starve. You've seen people stand on each other's necks just for the view. You know what it feels like when men blow each other up over a simple line in the sand. I do, but... And yet, and yet, you and Jonas want to open that door again. Bring all that back. If you could only see the possibility of Why? love. Of love. With love, love comes faith, with comes hope. Love is just passion that can turn. It turns we, we into contempt and murder. We could choose better. <laughs> People are weak. People are selfish. When people have the freedom to choose, they choose wrong every single time. Loss and pain, music, joy, the raw, impossible, beautiful feeling of love. Your son, he felt that.
She has felt it. That's enough. We are living a life of shadows, of echoes, of faint, distant whispers of what once made us real. Excuse me for one second, Diana. Uh, we must continue. Uh, he says in there, we've, uh, we're living shadows, echoes, faint whispers of what makes us real. This is obviously a picture of like, you know, taking away our emotions and love and all these things. But sometimes uh, I think that we've done this with the gospel. We've settled for a shadow of the real thing. And God is desiring so much more. For his people. You know, John 1 says the word came, dwelt among us, and became flesh. And they beheld God. And then Jesus says, it's better if I go away because I'm going to send the spirit to you. And he sends the spirit, fills us with the spirit, and now desires to make his word so enfleshed in you and me that we could speak to the world with the same confidence of Paul. It says, it's not me who lives. It's Christ no longer me, it's Christ. To such a degree of intimacy and union with God that it's not you who lives, it's Christ. That there is so much more of God. There is so much more he's desiring to show us, you, me. There's so much more. But the only thing that will hold us back from going into it is we get into the pessimism. No, you know, you heard him. There's, there's this, there's that risk, there's that war. There's that. We can always figure out all the reasons why there is risk. There's a lot of risk involved. But he's saying, if you could just hear the music, if you could just, if you could just feel love, if you could, if you could just understand what I see, you wouldn't ask those questions anymore. 
But the way we find that, the way we step into the music, the way we step into the real, the way that we step is when we say no to all the other voices and the man-pleasing and the approval, and we say, I'm going to be myself, and I'm going to follow you outside the camp of approval. If that's what it costs, not saying I'm looking for this, not looking to offend people, but I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he tells me. I don't care what people think of me, and I'm going to live for an audience of one and let you bring me to a place of such union with you that I express you fully, God. That's the bride. That's what the world's longing to see is his people fully alive. The fullness of God. I don't want part of him. I, do, I, want, I want him. So I'm just going to close in prayer. It's not really a pretty ending tonight. But that's okay. So you can just dim the lights. And I'm just going to open this. If you're on the prayer team, you can come forward while I'm praying. Lord, we want to hear the music. We want to know you. We want to step into the more. We want to count the cost and find that we have the courage to say yes to giving it all. I pray that you will evoke truth from our hearts and that you'll stir us tonight, God. Expose the man-pleasing spirit crucify our unholy desire to be accepted by other people, even if it means we step out of what you're saying. God, we don't want to live for approval of man. We don't want to live our lives governed and dictated by what people think of us. We want to live for your eyes alone and enter into the liberty and the authenticity of your essence that you breathed into us as you created us. Thank you, God, for the unresolved nature of what you wanted to speak tonight. Let it disturb us. Disturb us tonight, God. Disturb me. And push us deeper into your heart. In Jesus' name.